Welcome. You are listening to the Audio Information Network of Colorado. This recording is intended to be used solely by individuals with barriers to print. AINC programming is brought to you in part by Weissman Family Dental in Boulder, Colorado. For over 25 years, Weissman Family Dental has been providing high-quality dentistry. They offer regular checkups, emergency care, and a wide range of specialty services. They also have staff that speak Spanish. If you are looking for a new dentist, find them at WeissmanFamilyDental.com or call them at 303-494-0101 and tell them Audio Information Network of Colorado sent you. Thank you for joining us for the Thursday, December 8th, 2022 edition of the Boulder Weekly. Today we'll be reading the following articles. The Billionaire's Press Dominates Censorship Beat by Paul Rosenberg. Sanctuary and Exile by Bart Shainman. Is It Really So Strange by Jesse J. Gray. Pick a Side by Michael J. Casey. Kale Yeah by Ari Laveau. The Billionaire's Press Dominates Censorship Beat. Project Censored's list of the year's most underreported stories show one pattern dominating all others this year. By Paul Rosenberg, Senior Editor, Random Lengths News. Since its founding in 1976, Project Censored has been focused on stories that aren't censored in the authoritarian government sense, but in a broader sense reflective of what a functioning democracy should be. Censorship defined as the suppression of information, whether purposeful or not, by any method, including bias, omission, underreporting, or self-censorship, that prevents the public from fully knowing what is happening in society. It is, after all, the reason that journalism enjoys special protection in the First Amendment. Despite the promise of boundless access to information, Silicon Valley mirrors legacy media in its consolidated ownership and privileging of elite narratives. This new class of billionaire oligarchs owns or controls the most popular media platforms, including the companies often referred to as FANG, Facebook, Meta, Apple, Amazon, Netflix, and Google, Alphabet. There are multiple patterns to be found in the list of Project Censored stories, and these different patterns have much to tell us about the forces shaping what remains hidden. But the dominance of billionaire control truly is remarkable. It shows how profoundly the concentration of corporate wealth and power in the hands of so few distorts everything we see or don't in the world around us today. This piece has been edited for length. Fossil fuel industry subsidized at a rate of $11 million per minute. Globally, the fossil fuel industry receives subsidies of $11 million per minute, primarily from lack of liability for the externalized health costs of deadly air pollution, 42%, damages caused by extreme weather events, 29%, and costs from traffic collisions and congestion, 15%. And two-thirds of those subsidies come from just five countries, the United States, Russia, India, China, and Japan. These are key findings from a study of 191 nations published by the International Monetary Fund, or IMF, in September 2021 that were reported in The Guardian and Treehugger the next month, but have been ignored in the corporate media. No national government currently prices fossil fuels at what the IMF calls their efficient price, covering both their supply and environmental costs. Instead, an estimated 99% of coal, 52% of road diesel, 47% of natural gas, and 18% of gasoline are priced at less than half their efficient price, Project Censored notes. Efficient fuel pricing in 2025 would reduce global carbon dioxide emissions 36% below baseline levels, which is in line with keeping global warming to 1.5 degrees, while raising revenues worth 3.8% of global GDP and preventing 0.9 million local air pollution deaths, the IMF report states. 
The G7 nations had previously agreed to scrap fossil fuel subsidies by 2025. But the IMF found that subsidies have increased in recent years and will continue increasing. Eliminating fossil fuel subsidies could lead to higher energy prices and, ultimately, political protests and social unrest, Project Censored notes. But, as The Guardian and Treehugger each reported, the IMF recommended a comprehensive strategy to protect consumers, especially low-income households, impacted by rising energy costs and workers in displaced industries. Wage theft. U.S. businesses suffer few consequences for stealing millions from workers every year. In 2017, the Economic Policy Institute released a study saying that just one form of wage theft, minimum wage violations, cost U.S. workers an estimated $15 billion annually, impacting some 17% of low-wage workers. One reason it's so rampant is that companies are seldom punished. As Alexia Fernandez-Campbell and Joe Yerardi reported for the Center for Public Integrity in May 2021, drawing on 15 years of data from the U.S. Department of Labor's Wage and Hour Division, the agency fined only about one in four repeat offenders during that period. And it ordered those companies to pay workers cash damages penalty money in addition to back wages, in just 14% of those cases, they wrote. In addition, the division often lets businesses avoid repaying their employees all the money they're owed. In all, the agency has let more than 16,000 employers get away with not paying $20.3 million in back wages since 2005. We're talking about some major companies, Halliburton, G4S, Wackenhut, and Circle K stores were among the worst offenders, they reported. Wage theft includes the range of illegal practices, such as paying less than minimum wage, withholding tips, not paying overtime, or requiring workers to work through breaks or off the clock. It impacts service workers, low-income workers, immigrant and guest workers, and communities of color the most, Project Censored explains. Wage theft also includes worker misclassification as independent contractors, long the case with port truckers, and more recently, gig workers. Lack of resources is largely to blame for the lax enforcement, Project Centered explains. As of February 2021, the Wage and Hour Division employed only 787 investigators, a proportion of just one investigator per 182,000 workers, covered by the Fair Labor Standards Act. For comparison, in 1948, the division employed one investigator per 22,600 workers, or eight times the current proportion. Project Censored notes that the Wage Theft Prevention and Wage Recovery Act of 2022, if passed, would amend the Fair Labor Standards Act to protect workers from wage theft. EPA withheld reports on dangerous chemicals. In January 2019, the Environmental Protection Agency, or EPA, stopped releasing legally required disclosures about chemicals that present a substantial risk of injury to health or the environment. They had previously been posted in a searchable public database called ChemView. In November 2021, The Intercept's Sharon Lerner reported that the EPA had received at least 1,240 substantial risk reports since January 2019, but only one was publicly available. The suppressed reports documented the risk of chemicals' serious harms including eye corrosion, damage to the brain and nervous system, chronic toxicity to honeybees, and cancer in both people and animals, Lerner wrote. The reports include notifications about highly toxic polyfluoroalkyl substances, or PFAS, chemical compounds that are known as forever chemicals, because they build up in our bodies and never break down in the environment, Project Censored notes. The Environmental Working Group explains that very small doses of PFAS have been linked to cancer, reproductive and immune system harm, and other diseases. For decades, 
chemical companies covered up evidence of PFAS health hazards. It wasn't just the public that was kept in the dark, Lerner reported. The substantial risk reports have not been uploaded to the databases used most often by risk assessors searching for information about chemicals, according to one of the EPA scientists. They have been entered only into an internal database that is difficult to access and search. As a result, little and perhaps none of the information about these serious health risks to health and the environment has been incorporated into the chemical assessments completed during the period. In January 2022, public employees for environmental responsibility filed a lawsuit to compel EPA to disclose the reports, following up on an earlier public records request which, the National Law Review reported, was built upon information reported in a November 2021 article in The Intercept. Just weeks later, EPA announced it would resume posting the reports in ChemView. At least 128 members of Congress invested in fossil fuel industry. At least 100 U.S. representatives and 28 U.S. senators have financial interests in the fossil fuel industry. In November and December of 2021, Davy Moore reported in Sludge that 74 Republicans, 59 Democrats, and one Independent have fossil fuel industry investments, with Republicans outnumbering Democrats in both chambers. The top 10 House investors are all Republicans, but it's quite different in the Senate, where two of the top three investors are Democrats, and Democrats' total investments, 8,604,000 are more than double the Senate Republicans' total of 3,994,126. Topping the list is Joe Manchin, West Virginia, with up to $5.5 million of fossil fuel industry assets, while John Hickenlooper of Colorado is third with up to $1 million. Most significantly, many hold key seats on influential energy-related committees, Project Censored notes. Senators include Manchin, Chair of the Energy and Natural Resources Committee, Tina Smith, Democrat Minnesota, Chair of the Agriculture Subcommittee on Rural Development and Energy, and Tom Carper, Democrat, Delaware, Chair of the Committee on the Environment and Public Works. In the House, Project Centered explains, Nine of the 22 Republican members of the Energy and Commerce Committee are invested in the fossil fuel industry. Dark money interference in U.S. politics undermines democracy. The same group of conservative dark money organizations that opposed President Joe Biden's Supreme Court nomination, Judicial Crisis Network, JCN, the 85 Fund, and their affiliated groups, also funded entities that played a role in the January 6th insurrection, according to a report by the watchdog group Accountable U.S. They're closely linked to Leonard Leo, co-chair of the Federalist Society, with money coming from Donors Trust, a dark money group backed by the Koch Network, and the Bradley Foundation. These dark money groups not only funded Leo's network of organizations to the sum of over $52 million in 2020, but also funded entities in 2020 that played a role in the insurrection to the sum of over $37 million, Accountable U.S. reported. While there has been coverage of dark money spending on Supreme Court nominations, Igor Darish at Salon was alone in reporting the related involvement in January 6th. Just one group, JCN, spent $2.5 million before Biden even named his nominee, Kentanji Brown-Jackson, Darish reported, accusing Biden of caving into leftists by promising a Supreme Court nominee who will be a liberal activist. On the other hand, JCN spent tens of millions of dollars in helping to confirm Justices Neil Gorsuch and Brett Kavanaugh, according to Open Secrets and launched a $25 million effort to confirm Justice Amy Coney Barrett just weeks before the 2020 election. More disturbingly, Donors Trust has funneled more than $28 million to groups that pushed election lies or in some way funded the rally ahead of the Capitol riot, while members of the Federalist Society, 
played key roles in Donald Trump's attempts to overturn the election, including attorney and former visiting CU professor John Eastman, architect of Trump's plan to get Vice President Mike Pence to overturn the election, Senators Josh Hawley, Republican Missouri, and Ted Cruz, Republican Texas, who led the objections to the certification of Trump's loss after the riot, and Texas Attorney General Ken Paxton, who filed a lawsuit to throw out election results in key states, effectively overturning Biden's victory. In addition, 13 of the 17 other Republican attorneys general who joined Paxton's suit were also Federalist Society members. Corporate Consolidation Causing Record Inflation in Food Prices As Food and Water Watch reported in November 2021, while the cost of meat shot up, prices paid to farmers actually declined, spurring a federal investigation. That investigation is ongoing, but meat conglomerates Tyson Foods, Purdue Farms, Smithfield Foods, and JBS have paid over $225 million to settle related civil suits in the poultry, beef, and pork markets. That's just part of the problem. A July 2021 joint investigation by Food and Water Watch and The Guardian reported a handful of food giants, including Kraft, Heinz, General Mills, Conagra, Unilever, and Del Monte, control an average of 64% of sales of 61 popular grocery items, Project Censored notes. Three companies own 93% of carbonated soft drink brands, while another three produce 73% of the cereals on offer, and a single company, PepsiCo, owns five of the most popular dip brands, 88% of the market. Altogether, four firms or fewer controlled at least 50% of the market for 79% of the groceries, The Guardian reported. It's not just producers. In an October 2021 article for Common Dreams, Kenny Stansill documents that food producers, distributors, and grocery store chains are engaging in pandemic profiteering and taking advantage of decades of consolidation, which has given a handful of corporations an ever greater degree of market control, and with it the power to set prices, according to research by the Groundwork Collaborative. As for grocers, Kroger, the largest supermarket chain in the country, cited rising inflation as the reason for hiking prices in their stores, even as they cut worker pay by 8% in 2020, Project Censored notes. Kroger's CEO earned 909 times what the median worker earned, and the company spent $1.498 billion on stock buybacks between April 2020 and July 2021 to enrich its shareholders, the Groundwork Collaborative reported. One of the most common inflation scapegoats, supply chain problems, is itself a consequence of consolidation project censored notes. Just three global alliances of ocean shippers are responsible for 80% of all cargo, these shippers raked in nearly $80 billion in the first three quarters of 2021, twice as much as in the entire 10-year period from 2010 to 2020, by increasing their rates as much as tenfold. Concerns for journalistic independence as Gates Foundation gives $319 million to news outlets. In November 2021, for Mint Press News, Alan McLeod examined more than 30,000 individual grants from the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation and found it had donated more than $319 million to fund news outlets, journalism centers, and training programs, press associations, and specific media campaigns, raising questions about conflicts of interests and journalistic independence, Project Censored notes. Recipients of this cash include many of America's most important news outlets, including CNN, NBC, NPR, PBS, and The Atlantic. Gates also sponsors myriad influential foreign organizations, including the BBC, The Guardian, The Financial Times, and The Daily Telegraph in the UK. Prominent European newspapers such as Le Monde, France, Der Spiegel, Germany, and El País, Spain as well as big global broadcasters like Al Jazeera, he reported. 
McLeod's report includes a number of Gates-funded news outlets that also regularly feature in Project Censored's annual Top 25 Story Lists, such as the Solutions Journalism Network, $7.2 million, The Conversation, $6.6 million, The Bureau of Investigative Journalism, $1 million, and ProPublica, $1 million, Project Censored Notes. Direct awards to news outlets often targeted specific issues, McLeod reported. For example, one grant earmarked $2.3 million for the Texas Tribune to increase public awareness and engagement of education reform issues in Texas. As McLeod noted, given Bill Gates' advocacy of the charter school movement, which undermines teachers' unions and effectively aims to privatize the public education system, a cynic might interpret this as planting pro-corporate charter school propaganda into the media, disguised as objective news reporting. Missing from the figure were subgrants and grants aimed at producing articles for academic journals. CIA discussed plans to kidnap or kill Julian Assange. The CIA seriously considered plans to kidnap or assassinate WikiLeaks founder Julian Assange in late 2017, according to a September 2021 Yahoo News investigation, based on interviews with more than 30 former U.S. officials, eight of whom detailed U.S. plans to abduct Assange, and three of whom described the development of plans to kill him. If it had been up to CIA Director Mike Pompeo, they almost certainly would have been acted on, after WikiLeaks announced it had obtained a massive tranche of files, dubbed Vault 7, from the CIA's ultra-secret hacking division, and posted some of them online. In his first public remarks as Donald Trump's CIA director, Pompeo devoted much of his speech to the threat posed by WikiLeaks, Yahoo News noted. He even called it a non-state hostile intelligence service often abetted by state actors like Russia, a designation intended to grant the CIA wide latitude in what actions it took, while shielding it from congressional oversight. Potential scenarios proposed by the CIA and Trump administration officials included crashing into a Russian vehicle carrying Assange in order to grab him, shooting the tires of an airplane carrying Assange in order to prevent it takeoff, and engaging in a gun battle through the streets of London, Project Censored writes. WikiLeaks was a complete obsession of Pompeo's, a former Trump administration national security official told Yahoo News. There was also pushback from National Security Council, or NSC, lawyers and the Department of Justice, which wanted to put Assange on trial. But the CIA continued to push for capturing or killing Assange. Trump's NSC lawyers were bulwarks against the CIA's potentially illegal proposals, according to former officials, Yahoo News reported, but the CIA's own lawyers may have been kept in the dark. When Pompeo took over, he cut the lawyers out of a lot of things, a former senior intelligence community attorney told them. Pompeo's ready access to the Oval Office, where he would meet with Trump alone, exacerbated the lawyers' fears. The NSC's top lawyer, John Eisenberg, fretted that the CIA director was leaving those meetings with authorities or approvals signed by the president that Eisenberg knew nothing about, according to former officials. New laws preventing dark money disclosures sweep the nation. Since the Supreme Court's 2010 Citizens United decision relaxed campaign finance regulations, dark money spending has exploded and now Republican lawmakers across the U.S. are pushing legislation to make it illegal to compel nonprofit organizations to disclose who the dark money donors are. Recently passed laws in Arkansas, Arizona, Iowa, Oklahoma, Mississippi, South Dakota, Tennessee, Utah, and West Virginia are based on model legislation from the American Legislative Exchange Council, or ALEC which brings together corporate lobbyists and conservative lawmakers to advance special interests, business-friendly legislation. ALEC is deeply enmeshed with the sprawling political influence networks tied to billionaire families like the Kochs and the Bradleys, Donald Shaw reported for Sludge on June 15, 2021. 
Penalties for violating the laws vary between the states, but in some states could include prison sentences. Shaw explained how these bills create a loophole allowing wealthy individuals and groups to pass dark money anonymously to 501c organizations, which can in turn make independent expenditures to influence elections or contribute to other organizations that make independent political expenditures, such as super PACs, effectively shielding the ultimate source of political funds from public scrutiny, Project Censored summarizes. There's a federal impact as well. In a March 2022 article for Sludge, Shaw documented that the Federal Omnibus Appropriations Bill for fiscal year 2022 contained a rider exempting political groups that declare themselves social welfare organizations from reporting their donors, and another preventing the Securities and Exchange Commission from requiring corporations to publicly disclose more of their political and lobbying spending, Project Censored notes. Major media outlets lobby against regulation of surveillance advertising. Surveillance advertising, collecting users' data to target them with tailored advertising, has become a ubiquitous, extremely profitable practice on the world's most popular social network apps and platforms. But now, as Lee Fang reported for The Intercept in February 2022, the Biden administration's Federal Trade Commission, or FTC, is seeking to regulate user data collection. Lobbyists for the Interactive Advertising Bureau, or IAB, are pushing back. In a letter, IAB called for the FTC to oppose a ban on data-driven advertising networks, claiming the modern media cannot exist without mass data collection, Fang reported. The IAB represents both data brokers and online media outlets that depend on digital advertising, such as CNN, The New York Times, MSNBC, Time, U.S. News & World Report, The Washington Post, Vox, The Orlando Sentinel, Fox News, and dozens of other media companies, Fang explained. The lobbying reveals a tension that is rarely a center of the discourse around online privacy. Major media corporations increasingly rely on a vast ecosystem of privacy violations, even as the public relies on them to report on it. As a result, major news outlets have remained mostly silent on the FTC's current push and a parallel effort to ban surveillance advertising by the House and Senate by Rep. Anna Eshoo, Democrat, California, and Senator Cory Booker, Democrat, New Jersey, Fang concluded. The IAB argues that targeted advertising, and by extension, the siphoning of user data, has become necessary due to declining revenues from print sales and subscriptions, Project Censored writes. The personal information collected by online media is typically sold to aggregators such as BlueKai, owned by Oracle, and OpenX, that exploit user data, including data describing minors, to create predictive models of users' behavior, which are then sold to advertising agencies. The covert nature of surveillance advertising makes it difficult for users to opt out. In addition, the user information collected by media sites also enables direct manipulation of public perception of political issues, as famously happened when the British consulting firm Cambridge Analytica tapped into personal data from millions of Facebook users to craft campaign propaganda during the 2016 U.S. presidential election. Paul Rosenberg is a Los Angeles, California-based writer, senior editor for Random Lengths News, and a columnist for Salon and Al Jazeera English. Copyright Random Lengths News, a division of Beacon Light Press, 2022. Sanctuary and Exile Former Denver resident Ted Conover immerses himself among the San Luis Valley prairie dwellers in Cheap Land, Colorado, by Bart Shaneman. From working as a guard in Sing Sing Prison to inspecting meat in a Nebraska beef plant, Ted Conover has taken on some difficult assignments in his long and decorated career as an immersive journalist. 
but trying to live among and write about people who have intentionally moved as far away as they can from mainstream society, as Conover did for his new book, Cheap Land, Colorado, Off-Gridders at America's Edge, required extra tact and finesse. Over the course of four years, the former Denver resident and Pulitzer Prize finalist lived and worked on the plains of the San Luis Valley in the south-central region of the state, where people, for all manner of reasons, have come to stake their claims on $5,000 five-acre plots of land. It's a very different world from the one most of us inhabit, Conover says, and it's got a lot of people who are not looking to meet strangers. He highlighted the fact that a Google search of his name quickly shows he's a journalist and a professor who lives in New York City, which is three strikes to some people, he says. To gain favor and meet the people he wanted to write about, Conover volunteered for La Puente, a nonprofit organization that helps the poor. As part of his duties, he would deliver free firewood to people out on the prairie who lived in modular homes, ramshackle quarters often made out of RVs and other cobbled-together domiciles. But his volunteer work alone didn't cure the pervasive skepticism about another stranger coming to this harsh, unforgiving environment. On the prairie, people often resist getting to know new people until they've lasted at least one winter, Conover says. That resistance is owed to a few reasons. A lot of people don't make it that long, for one, and many underestimate how difficult it is to live in such a place and end up abusing the kindness of a helping hand. What you fear out there is your neighbor's needs, Conover says. They might find themselves suffering and look to you for help. Buying in. As is typical of his work, Conover's writing goes far deeper than the surface of the subject, mainly because he essentially became one of the 1,000 or so people living on the five-acre plots of land between the Sangre de Cristo and the San Juan Mountains near Alamosa. He went as far as buying a place to live, which he still owns. My project was to understand life on the flats, and ownership was a major part of that, he writes in the book. I could interview a hundred landowners, and probably had, but it seemed to me I'd understand them all better if I were a landowner. In a way similar to Jessica Bruder's 2017 book Nomadland, Surviving America in the 21st Century, which was made into an Academy Award-winning movie, Cheap Land Colorado ends up saying as much about American society as it does about the individual lives it depicts. You can definitely see that the presence of some people out there points to our failure as a country to offer other paths for low-income people, Conover says. Many have been through various kinds of trauma, whether it's military service or losing their house, falling under an addiction that has cost them their dearest friends and relatives. I'm not saying America is responsible for all of this, but somehow we produce a lot of people who don't fit in. Leaving Society Another set of people Conover depicts are those who simply came to leave urban life behind. Generally speaking, the Flats residents I met were not the young and idealistic, though there were exceptions, he writes. Rather, they were the restless and the fugitive, the idle and the addicted, and the generally disaffected, the done with what we're supposed to do crowd. People who, feeling chewed up and spit out, had turned away from and sometimes against institutions they'd been involved with all of their lives, whether companies or schools or the church. The prairie was their sanctuary and their place of exile. That's not to say the picture he paints is bleak, though the poverty and the lack of job opportunities, health care and quality education can be grim. Despite that, Conover notes that the land and the sky and the weather are all romantic and beautiful and that these people had chosen to come live there, difficulties be damned. That added something hopeful to the whole equation, he writes. Making a life out there does have its positives for some families, as Conover puts it. One family, for example, wasn't getting by with dad painting houses in Greeley and mom taking care of three kids. So they figured they would reduce their needs and live in a trailer out on the prairie. 
They live hand to mouth, but they will tell you this is where they want to be, and they wouldn't want to live somewhere else, Conover says. They might wish they had more of a padding for when the truck breaks down, and when Dad gets sent to the hospital in Denver because of blood clot in his legs, but they seem on balance to be glad they're there. For someone in Boulder reading this, thinking they want to head south for some cheap land, Conover suggests they consider the whole picture. The upsides are pretty clear, he says. The land is cheap. For much of the year, the weather is nice. But they should consider the downsides, which is that if you don't stay there for the rest of your lives, things you might leave on your property might not be secure, like building materials or anything. Conover says whole RVs can disappear while people are away because of the needs of their neighbors. And selling land might be impossible because there's an oversupply of five-acre lots. That's the wrench in this frontier dream, he adds. It may not make financial sense. It's not a great investment. It's an easy way to lose money. But the startup costs are low. On the shelf, Cheap Land, Colorado, off-gridders at America's Edge, is available now via Penguin Random House. Is it really so strange? On the heels of a breakout year, genre-allergic art rocker Barty's Strange breaks down his winding journey from farm to table by Jesse J. Gray. The last couple years have been strange for Barty's Leon Cox Jr. After his 2020 debut album, Live Forever, caught fire in the early days of the pandemic, lighting up audiences with its genre-scrambling fusion of indie rock, hip-hop, electronic dance music, and Midwestern emo, the 33-year-old artist known as Barty's Strange has found himself trading a career in communications for sold-out tours, broadcast television appearances, and shared billing with some of the very bands he grew up admiring in the rural suburbs west of Oklahoma City. The timing and tenor of his success has abruptly knocked the DC-based musician into another orbit, but it didn't come out of nowhere. Since he picked up his first guitar as a teenager, zapped by the otherworldly energy of millennial New York art rock heroes, TV on the radio, Strange has dedicated himself to building a life around his songs. I didn't ever think I would make it. I just knew I was never going to stop, he says. I doubted it my entire twenties, because I was thinking of it the wrong way. I was comparing myself to all these artists who were having these huge moments, and I was like, damn, I missed my shot. But Strange didn't miss his shot. Instead, with this year's release of his acclaimed sophomore effort, Farm to Table, he's having his biggest moment yet. Released last June on the legendary British indie label 4AD, his blistering and beautiful new record was met with glowing reviews from new media tastemakers like Pitchfork and old guards like Rolling Stone, landing the emerging musician at the center of human interest profiles in the Washington Post, the New York Times Magazine, PBS NewsHour, and elsewhere. It makes me think about the next couple years, Strange says, when asked about how far he's come since the shot in the dark of his chameleonic debut. Because honestly, I'm like, whoa, that shit worked. I can't believe it. What could happen next? This journey from the rural reaches of the Sooner State to indie rock stardom is right here in the title of Strange's latest, Farm to Table. It's partly a reference to his former summer job painting fences on a farm in Yukon, Oklahoma, before making his way decades later to a seat at the glass-top conference tables of the music industry, a place he never thought he'd be. As I got older, I started falling more and more in love with music, and I was seeing these artists I wanted to be around, he says. I started wondering, how do you get a seat at that table? How do you become one of those people? It felt so out of reach. But there's a second meaning to that turn of phrase, a seat at the table, that underscores the challenges of navigating the alt-rock world as an artist of color. It's a conversation Strange doesn't shy away from, and one he hopes will prop open the door for more black and brown artists on the same path. Farm to Table is about getting to the table with these people you admire. Now I'm at the table and everybody's white, he says. 
I'm realizing my journey is not going to be like any of these people's journeys, no matter how much I respect and love their music. My journey is going to be different, maybe for better, maybe for worse, but it's going to be mine. Like the pixelated black Jesus collaged in a Last Supper scene alongside the artist's childhood photos on the cover of his new LP, Strange has found himself pulling up his chair at a pivotal moment. Now he's using the opportunity to say something that matters, and say it with his whole chest. Take the album standout Hold the Line, a tender tearjerker replete with weeping slide guitar, in which Strange bends words of comfort and resolve toward the surviving young daughter of George Floyd in the wake of his high-profile killing by a Minneapolis police officer. I grew up in a pretty white, rural place, and a lot of my life I was very afraid of dying from the police or someone who just didn't like me. My parents grew up in the Deep South in the 60s. Their parents grew up in the 30s and 40s. So the nightmare stories I've heard are extreme, Strange says. As a kid that just buries itself within you. So to see someone get killed, and they're playing it over and over on TV, you'll never be able to make sense of it. Your whole body reacts. Elsewhere, Farm to Table carries on its singular exploration of grief, success, and family dynamics with the artist's trademark restlessness. From the twinkling emo guitars kicking off album opener Heavy Heart, to the dance floor-ready pulse of Wretched, and the punk show explosion of Escape This Circus, Strange's new roller coaster of a record is the sound of an uncontainable new voice in the broadly defined world of indie rock. It all culminates in a soulful, stripped-down closing track, Hennessy, that finds Strange laying himself bare for the listeners whose attention he's fought so hard for over the course of his long and winding path to the table. Through the record, there are all these huge leaps. We have our big rock moments, big rap moments. A lot of the things are happening from song to song, he says. I felt like I needed something to remind people that I'm a normal person. There's all this shit happening, but it's just me. It's just Barty's. On the bill, Barty's Strange with Pom Pom Squad and They Hate Change, 8 p.m. Wednesday, December 14th, Bluebird Theater, 3317 East Colfax Ave, Denver. Pick a side. Miklos Jansko's The Red and the White tangles with the absurdity of war in the year's best home video collection by Michael J. Casey. The year is 1918, and red troops are rounding up the white guards. War is on, and the insurgents are to be executed. But as the victors take their time playing by the rules of engagement, a fresh batch of white soldiers ride in and take the red troops hostage. Their control doesn't last long. Nothing does in the red and the white. Made in 1967, the feature by Hungarian filmmaker Miklos Jansko is an absurdist take on warfare through the lens of the 1917 Soviet Revolution. Borders are abstract, loyalties too. A fistful of nationalities, Armenian, Cossack, Georgian, Hungarian, and Russian, provides some grounding, but trying to keep track of who is who and which side is winning is a whole point. Cinematographer Tama Somlo films everything in a long bravura tracking shots with characters constantly told to come here, go there, run away, come back, stand up, and sit down. Soldiers on foot stalk other soldiers. Riders on horses chase the soldiers. Biplanes overhead shoot at the riders and the running soldiers. It's all chaos. And no matter which side has the upper hand, you can always see another battalion in the background coming for their turn at the top. You won't have to squint hard to find parallels to present political situations. It would be hilarious if it weren't so tragic. The Soviets commissioned the Red and the White to celebrate the 50th anniversary of the October Revolution, but Jansko's film never screened in Russia. Watch it, and there's little surprise as to why. The 1960s were a charged time politically and artistically, and filmmakers were pushing every boundary they found. New waves were crashing across Europe, and Jansko's was at the crest. That's what makes Kino Lorber's newly released Miklos Jansko collection all the more exciting. 
Six feature films, all restored from the original camera negatives by the National Film Institute, Hungary Film Archive, alongside seven shorts and a bevy of commentaries, provide a masterclass in the increasingly overlooked cinema of Jansko. It's an outstanding set, perfect for the movie lover in your life. On screen, Miklos Jansko Collection, available now on Blu-ray from Kino Lorber. Other 2022 home video releases for the holidays. Streaming services have changed the game in more ways than we can count. But the continued fracturing of platforms and the constant shuffle of studio catalogs have turned Discovery into a closed-loop system. It's more difficult, not to mention expensive, for adventurous moviegoers to find something new. The answer? Home video. Buy the movie once and never worry about increased membership fees or the movie vanishing from one service only to pop up on something new. Looking for something for the movie lover in your life this holiday season? Kino Lorber's Miklos Jansko collection on Blu-ray is a great place to start. And while we're talking stock stuffers, here are five more 2022 home video releases sure to impress. The Godfather Trilogy. Two masterpieces from the 1970s and one ill-advised sequel from 1990 about a mafia family. Released by Paramount Pictures on 4K UHD. The Piano. 1993's Palme d'Or winner somehow looks even lusher and more erotic in this digital restoration. Released by the Criterion Collection in a 4K UHD and Blu-ray set. The Tales of Hoffman. This dreamy, three-strip Technicolor adaptation of Jacques Offenbach's opera might be the pinnacle of the composed film, released by the Criterion Collection on Blu-ray. Touch of Evil, the 1958 butchered masterpiece of police corruption in a border town gets restored and presented in three different versions, all worth watching, released by Kino Lorber on 4K UHD. El Vampiro Negro, the almost lost 1953 Argentinian noir of a compulsive child killer breathes new life in this sparkling restoration. Released by Flickr Alley in Blu-ray DVD set. Tale Yeah, Preparing Your Belly for Holiday Warfare by Ari Laveau. The most popular New Year's resolutions each year, according to polls, relate to diet, exercise, and weight loss. It makes sense that folks would resolve to turn around the ship after finding themselves out the back end of holiday season. Alas, by the time New Year's Day rolls around, the damage has already been done. Losing weight is a lot harder than avoiding it in the first place. That is why now, rather than January, is the time to craft a plan that will help you navigate the treacherous temptations of the holiday food table. Here are some thoughts on the subject, followed by a recipe for massaged kale salad that is guaranteed to leave your belly happy and full of fiber. 1. Treat your stomach space like the most valuable real estate, like Victorians treated virginity. Don't just give it away to the first hors d'oeuvres tray that floats by. It's easy to surrender to filling your belly with whatever is within arm's reach. Just don't. If there is nothing good to eat, then don't eat. Take a breather. Something more worthy of your belly will be around soon enough. 2. The day after a feast, wait until lunchtime to eat breakfast. Some people worry that skipping breakfast leads to more eating later in the day to compensate, which can supposedly cause weight gain. But the most recent evidence, not to mention the anecdotal experiences of vocal breakfast skippers, suggests that response is rare. In any case, during the holidays, you already know you are going to eat more later in the day, so skipping breakfast to compensate for the gluttony to come makes sense. And after a night of feasting, you might just sleep in until lunchtime anyway. 3. Up the activity. I don't mean to imply that you can exercise away the excess, because unless you're an endurance athlete, your workouts probably won't compensate for the level of gluttony typical of the holidays. But exercise is always good for you, and will help you build some discipline that you can put to work at the holiday trough. And if you're skipping breakfast, you do have that time slot available. 
Four, pre-party with green plant fiber. If you show up with a belly that has something in it, you won't be that guy crowding the food table before it's time to eat. Arriving at a lavish buffet with fiber in your belly has other benefits too. Greens are generally a good digestive aid that will help move along all the custard puffs, pumpkin pies, and cookies that might tempt you. Here are three kale-focused recipes to enjoy this holiday season. If you're headed to a party, start the evening with a bowl or two of this massaged kale salad. And maybe bring some to the potluck if you think the other guests might want some tasty fiber in their lives. Massaged Kale Salad In this recipe, you use your hands to knead the kale with salt and lemon or lime juice. This action breaks the cell walls, leaving the kale soft, pliable, and easier to eat. My kale of choice is the long and narrow-leafed Lacinato kale, which also goes by the names Dino kale, Black kale, and Tuscan kale. Curly green kale is a good second choice. The action of physically squeezing the leaves in salt and lemon juice softens them, almost like a light sauté would, and makes them a joy to eat. Just remember that like many salads, this one isn't low on calories, but at least the calories come from fat, which, like fiber, sates the belly and takes the edge off of hunger. That is why calories from salad are better for you than eggnog calories. Serves four. Six cups kale, center ribs removed, chopped crosswise to about one half inch slices. Four tablespoons lime or lemon juice. One teaspoon salt. One clove garlic, pressed. Garlic lovers can multiply as necessary. One half cup olive oil. One tablespoon Dijon mustard. One quarter cup grated Parmesan or crumbled feta. Place the kale, lime, and salt in a large mixing bowl. Squeeze handfuls of kale as hard as you can over and over for about a minute. Add the rest of the ingredients, toss together, and serve. Kale Potato Salad Chunks of potatoes plastered and speckled with kale, full of that unmistakable potato salad-y flavor of summer. Here at the beginning of winter, you can serve it warm as a comforting bowlful. After a day in the fridge, meanwhile, it will improve. I like to fry the leftovers in the greasy presence of chopped bacon. Serves four. Four cups diced red potatoes, peeled or not. Four-ish cups of kale or other fibrous greens, stripped from the center vein and chopped. Optional, chop up the ribs, which are tougher, to cook with the potatoes. If using frozen kale, it should be thawed. Two cups stock or water. One half cup olive oil, or more to taste. 1 quarter cup white vinegar, 1 half tablespoon mustard powder, 1 teaspoon dried thyme, 1 half teaspoon celery seed, 1 teaspoon ground or dried rosemary, 1 quarter teaspoon black pepper, 2 garlic cloves, and more to taste, minced or grated, 1 half cup minced onion, 1 half cup minced celery, 1 cup finely diced cheddar cheese, salt to taste, Optional, red pepper flakes. Thank you again for joining us for this week's edition of the Boulder Weekly. Have a good night. If you enjoyed this program, please register for our free services at www.aincolorado.org or by calling 303-786-7777.